Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores experience and meaning and their impact on individuals and the broader society. Before I begin, I want to reiterate that I am not expert in these subjects I'm looking up. I'm starting from a place of ignorance and making a good faith effort to gain a little understanding about a topic and then condensing what I learn into an episode that I hope will create interest and a starting point for other people to do their own investigation. I'm not so much informing people as just making people aware that certain ideas or movements or options exist. What I'm providing is only a snapshot of what I found after looking into these areas I find interesting or relevant. I've seen some internet buzz lately about plagiarism, and I thought it was a good time to reiterate that everything I'm telling you outside of my own opinion statements is coming from sources that I make a good faith effort to cite in the description. A lot of what I'm scripting is based on quotes or rephrasing what I have found. So if you do check the sources, you will find that what I'm saying in these episodes will be exactly or a close approximation of what is in the sources themselves, because that's where the information is coming from. I hope no one is taking these episodes as anything more than that. Today's episode, as you may have gathered from the title already, is going to deal with a topic that hits on violence, including gun violence and genocidal violence. If any of this is problematic for you, you might want to skip the episode or at least listen to it at a time when you feel like you are more prepared or more capable of giving this a listen. And with that, let's get into today's content. Talat Pasha woke up one rainy Tuesday morning in March intending to buy a new pair of gloves. Instead, a man coming in the opposite direction crossed the street after they passed, came up behind him, and shot him in the neck at close range on a busy street corner in Germany in the late morning. Talat died instantly and fell to the ground in a pool of his own blood. When onlookers began to shout, the killer dropped his gun and ran, He didn't get far before he was apprehended by a shop owner, and a mob descended and began to beat him. All the while, he kept shouting in broken German that he was a foreigner, and that the man he had murdered was a foreigner. He survived the beating, and when police questioned him, he insisted he was no murderer, and that in fact, Talat Pasha was the real murderer. Talat Pasha, also known as Mehmet Talat, was born September 1, 1874, in what is now Bulgaria, but was then part of the Ottoman Empire, to a Romani family. When he was only about four years old, his family was forced to flee Constantinople, now Istanbul, when Russian forces invaded and occupied the territory in which they were living. Talat grew up without his father, an Ottoman official, a judge, who died when Talat was only eleven. I tried to find information on the cause or circumstances of his death, but it wasn't something that came up quickly, and I didn't pursue it. These early experiences with occupation instilled in Talat a sense of nationalism with his Turkish-Ottoman roots. He struggled in school and left at 16 without a certificate. He took a job and worked a side gig teaching Turkish language to students at a nearby Israeli school. At his day job working for a telegraph company, he sent a personal telegraph that was interpreted as suspicious by the governing authority of the then Ottoman Empire. He was arrested, and after being released, he signed up with the Committee of Union and Progress, or CUP, an organization within the resistance known as the Young Turks. These groups were agitating against the autocratic leader of the Ottoman Empire, Sultan Abdul Hamid II. He was arrested again along with his brother-in-law and served a year before being pardoned, but was then exiled to Thessalonica in Greece. There he worked his way through municipal jobs and continued his subversive activities. 
Eventually, some of the activist groups he was involved with gained more connections and power where he was living, and he was elected into parliament, even becoming the parliamentary vice president. Power struggles continued, however, with Abdul Hamid attempting to regain his autocratic rule, and Talat's factions alternately fled for their lives and rose to power in other areas. This particular time was tumultuous and tenuous. Talat was beginning to lose hope that the multi-ethnic Ottoman Empire could ever be united under constitutionalism and a rule of law. As a result, his political philosophies became more radical, and after many wars and coups and overthrows and political power struggles, Talat emerged as the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire in 1917. And some historians mark his control over the Ottoman Empire from this time, even though technically he was not the Sultan. And I do get that's a lot to gloss over, but feel free to use the links in the description to read the details for yourself. This particular episode is not about the rise and fall and the evolution of the Ottoman Empire into what it is today. But taking a break from Talat and reaching back just a bit, in 1896, when Talat would have been 22 years old, Sogaman Talarian was born and eventually raised in eastern Turkey. His father wanted to move the family to Serbia and left to make those arrangements. However, when he returned, he was arrested, and although the details on that arrest are sparse, I think, based on the political climate at the time, it was probably due to political leanings and activities. There isn't a lot written about Sogman's early life, but he went to school and was educated and eventually did make it to Serbia where he studied engineering. His goal was to continue his studies in Germany. However, in 1914, just three years before Talat would take over the whole of the Ottoman Empire, a then 18-year-old Sogman journeyed to Russia and joined the army, volunteering to serve on the front lines in a war against the Turks. In 1915, a year after Sogoman joined the Russian army and two years before Talat's rise to power, local Ottoman authorities began a deportation of Armenians from the province where Sogoman was from and where his family still lived. This deportation was part of a much larger historic event that would come to be known as the Armenian Genocide. After Talat had gained power over the Ottoman Empire, he began a program called Turkification, which was exactly as it sounds. It embodied policies and attitudes that emphasized Turkish population homogeneity. Turkish culture, Turkish language, a policy officially rolled out by the Young Turks. In just a few years, Talat had plans to rid the Ottoman Empire of particular ethnic groups including the Armenians. Talks between his own CUP party, which was becoming more radicalized, and the ARF, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, disintegrated, and Talat sent word to governors in a dozen provinces to prepare for the arrests of Ottoman Armenian citizens. Armenian and Assyrian citizens began forming militias for self-defense against growing political oppression. In the years leading up to this, from 1877 to 1914, European powers such as Germany, England, Russia, were confronted by something called the Armenian Question. It was simply the question of whether to, and how to, help the Armenian people, who were reporting that they were subjected to forced land seizure, forced religious conversion, arson, a protection racket, rape, and murder. To some degree, Russia extended itself militarily to both defend Armenian lands and to open its borders to refugees, but other powers, specifically Great Britain, objected to Russia holding so much Ottoman land. Russian forces were pulled back with a plan for the Ottoman Empire to police itself and report on its own progress, which may not have been the best idea since it was basically putting the fox in charge of the hen house. Although the Armenians sent a delegation to represent their cause at talks held by these nations, collectively sometimes called the powers, the unfortunate Armenian delegates were left out of the negotiations. Negotiations which were being held to discuss the fate of the Armenians. 
For their part, the Armenians hoped for freedom and independence looking to Bulgaria, which had recently achieved the same. All of this was happening around 1880 and 1881. More than a decade later, in 1895, the European powers submitted a new set of reforms. French diplomat Victor Berard wrote, quote, After six months of constant massacres, while Europe pretended that the Armenian question was already solved, the Armenians decided to show Europe that the Armenian question still existed, but that there was no Ottoman government anymore, unquote. These new reforms were never implemented, and eventually the Armenians themselves began to build more of a resistance, forming revolutionary and political parties. This was during the years between 1894 and 1896 when the massacres, known as the Hamidian massacres or the Armenian massacres, were at their worst in the area. Adults and children alike were targeted and murdered in an effort to create a more homogenous state, but these massacres were only a precursor of what was to come. As this was unfolding, news was traveling around Western Europe and also to the United States about what was happening. But very few active measures were taken to actually stop these atrocities. I recently started reading a book titled A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide by Samantha Power. She talks about the U.S. response to genocides and actually lays out steps that my country takes to avoid addressing it when it happens. In the Armenian genocide specifically, power showed clearly how the Ottoman Empire responded by claiming the deaths were unavoidable casualties of war. Many people outside of the situation, reluctant to believe that an entire people could be targeted for extermination and mass expulsion from their lands, chose to accept this explanation. The Armenians were simply the unfortunate victims of war and not the subjects of targeted mass violence. Again, much of this violence had to do with the Ottoman Empire pushing for a homogenous national identity that included both cultural and religious identity. They saw these enclaves of different people, culturally different, religiously different, as a threat to their dominance and that national identity they wanted to defend and enforce. The leadership felt their religion and culture were superior and had treated these culturally and religiously different people as second-class citizens. The more those people pushed for reform and the right to be treated equally and with basic human dignity, the more threatened the empire felt and the harder they cracked down using war as a cover for genocide. In one account from a French official who was stationed in Turkey, Gustav Mayer, he described how in one Turkish city, Urfa, Ottoman troops burned the local Armenian cathedral where 3,000 Armenians had gathered inside to take refuge. Assyrians were similarly attacked, but the numbers of Armenians slaughtered was staggering and letters from the Ottoman soldiers used dehumanizing language comparing those massacred to animals and bragging about looting their land and possessions. Despite the graphic descriptions and widespread reports of the atrocities against the Armenians, much of the world found it easier to believe these were just exaggerated accounts of normal horrors of war. One man, Henry Morgenthau, worked tirelessly as the U.S. ambassador to the Ottoman Empire from 1913 to 1916, calling the events he witnessed the greatest crime of the ages. He had begun his work concerned with the safety of Armenian citizens, mainly Christians and Jews, living and traveling in the empire, but quickly became focused on the Armenian question. It was during his time as the ambassador that full-blown genocidal assault against the Armenians broke out. His office was flooded with reports from other U.S. consuls about massacres and death marches and mass exportations. He was compelled to reach out to the U.S. to ask for intervention, but the U.S. government maintained their position of neutrality. Morgenthau then appealed to the Ottoman authorities, who ignored him. He raised over $100 million in aid to the Armenians, which was another method Samantha Power mentioned in her book for how countries ignored genocides, 
by addressing them instead as humanitarian aid problems rather than pogroms. Morgenthau worked to keep the narratives in the media. Working with the New York Times, they published 145 articles on these atrocities in 1915 alone. In 1916, having exhausted his appeals to the U.S. government, to the Ottoman leaders, to his donor friends for financial aid and support, and to his media connections to expose the narratives, he resigned his post in defeat. None of his efforts had resulted in intervention to stop the slaughter of Armenians. Later, in 1918, he raised more flags to say that these same tactics were being employed against Greeks and Assyrians as well, with millions of deaths resulting. But no appeal he could make to any power, no amount of money, no number of red flares or recounting of narratives of atrocities made any difference. The ongoing slaughter of millions of people based strictly on cultural and religious identity continued as if it were a foregone fate where no intervention was possible. And among the dead were the family of our Russian soldier, Sogomon Talarian, who made vengeance his mission. After the war, Talarian went to Constantinople, where he assassinated Harushan Mergditishan, who had worked for the Ottoman secret police and helped compile the list of Armenian intellectuals who would be deported on April 24, 1915. This was a tactic Samantha Power discussed as a means of cutting off the head of a culture, going after the leaders, the philosophers, the keepers of cultural information and history, eliminating them to ensure that the people you're trying to eliminate will be unable to reconstruct their institutional knowledge. Tolerian was not alone, and one of the groups set up for revenge was called Operation Nemesis. When they saw his success neutralizing Magurditician, they entrusted him with the assassination of one of the chief architects of the genocide, Talat Pasha. With support from Nemesis, Talarian obtained a visa to study in Germany, where Pasha was then living in exile. And there, according to plans, he executed Pasha on the street in broad daylight on a rainy Tuesday morning. He was arrested and tried for murder and subsequently acquitted after the jury heard from witnesses about the atrocities Pasha had orchestrated against the Armenians, including Talarian's own family. The irony should not be lost that the same nation that acquitted a genocide survivor for executing an architect of genocide would give rise only a few decades later to a dictator who would use the same tactics to implement perhaps the world's most infamous genocide, the Holocaust. To this day, Sogomon Talarian is seen as a hero to many Armenians. But his story, the story of his part in the assassination, caught the attention of a man named Raphael Lemkin, who wondered to himself, is it a crime for Talarian to kill a man, but it's not a crime for his oppressor to kill more than a million men? This is most inconsistent. Lemkin thought this because at the time all of this was taking place, genocide was not illegal. In fact, genocide wasn't even a word. But Lemkin recognized something distinct in what happened to the Armenians that was not simply explained by labels like casualties of war. It was a targeted attack on a cultural identity to wipe it off the face of the earth for no other reason than a belief that its existence was considered intolerable in the face of a goal to create an ethnostate where diversity was not embraced. Lemkin was dismayed that the only method of accountability for such atrocities was an act like assassination. There was no court or charge that Talat Pasha could be made to face. And part of this, as well, was an inflated view of national sovereignty that existed at the time. I still remember my own father having this opinion. It's that recent. And a lot of young people may not realize this because today we have more of a concept and a construct of a global community mindset, an international community. 
the UN was established in 1945, my father would have been 16 years old at that time and about to enter the military. The World Health Organization was established in 1948, just a few years later as my father was entering young adulthood. To give you some idea of how disconnected the world was at this time, when my father entered the army, he remembers his buddies, also in the service, listening to something on the radio. He asked them what it was, and they laughed because he didn't know. They were listening to the World Series. The first World Series was played 26 years before my father was born, but he grew up in a small railroad town in Iowa surrounded by farmland and had never heard of it. The high school he attended was so small they couldn't support a football team, so they only had basketball. But this interconnected global community, nations coming together to police the actions of other nations, is something that, historically speaking, has only recently arrived on the scene. Before this time, nations did what they wanted within their borders, and a prevailing attitude was that, within their borders, nations could exercise a good deal of sovereignty over citizens, and other nations basically ignored what was happening, unless it spilled over into their borders, which generally resulted in some sort of conflict or war. And if one nation aggressed against another, land it could take became land that was theirs. It was a bit of an international wild west where might makes right. But as we moved toward the idea of global international community where nations could make it their business to intervene in the affairs of other nations, this opened the door for all sorts of opportunities for new international laws and policies. And for Lemkin, this meant that what had happened in Armenia, not just horrors of war, but targeted extermination and expulsion of entire peoples, could be made illegal on planet Earth. And this became his mission in life, literally consuming his entire life. This was extremely interesting to me personally because... I think, like most people, I just assumed that genocide had been around a lot longer than it had been. But up until Lemkin defined it, and the UN declared it was against international law, it was just a thing that happens sometimes in various regions of the world. Until Lemkin, there wasn't a legal concept or construct, a recognition of this specific type of killing as something we today would label genocide. Even the Armenian genocide is only identified as a genocide in the sense that we're taking the concept and construct of genocide as defined in 1948 by Lemkin and adopted by the UN and retroactively going back in time to apply it to an action that would have been labeled as a genocide had it happened in 1948 or after. Prior to the UN convention, it was just a thing that sometimes happened, that one group did to another that was horrible but not illegal because the attitude between nations was, who am I to tell you how to run your country? I wouldn't want you telling me what I can and can't do as a nation, so I'll just stay out of it and mind my own business. In some ways, it's got parallels to domestic violence in that regard. I still remember when it was illegal to assault a stranger on the street, but if you were assaulting your partner in your home, the state considered it a family matter and not something they needed to intervene in. But I didn't know until I read Powers' book that genocide was a relatively new way of looking at, well, at what we would today call genocide. It happened... It just wasn't recognized as a thing in and of itself, separate from any other horrors of war. This created a shift in my thinking because the first time I heard about the UN Convention on Genocide was a TikTok content creator who was talking about how the convention could be applied to what the US was doing to transgender people and culture. Many laws that exist in my country fit the definition of genocide as defined by Lemkin and the UN. At the time I heard that content, I remember thinking that the creator was correct, that what the U.S. is doing to trans people does fit the UN definition of what constitutes genocide. 
And I thought that if someone uses the UN definition, they're right. What I didn't realize at the time was that the UN definition was the definition of genocide. That UN convention is what created and defined what a genocide is under international law and actually established for the first time genocide as a real thing that you could point to and compare to a description and say, yes, this is a genocide or no, this is not a genocide. Before Lemkin and the UN Convention, there was nothing that described or defined or provided real criteria for anything to be what we now recognize as genocide. The word genocide and the crime of genocide simply did not exist before then. People were doing it, but it had no label or penalty. It wasn't recognized as a thing unto itself. That being said, there is real reason then to appeal to that convention as the authoritative criteria for what is and is not a genocide. It wasn't a definition. It was literally the definition. And that's the part I didn't fully grasp until recently. And it has changed how I view conversations around genocide. I collected a few examples to share to explain how I see them now after stumbling upon this fact. But first, let's look at the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Let's just read the actual text where genocide is described, which is not that long. The crime itself is in Article 2 as follows. Article 2. In the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. A. Killing members of the group. B. Causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. E. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. End of description. It's very important to recognize that as written, any of those things is prohibited. There is no requirement that all of those points be included for a charge of genocide to be levied. In Article 3, it describes the various levels of charges that can be brought if these acts occur. Article 3. The following acts shall be punishable. A. Genocide. B. Conspiracy to commit genocide. C. Direct and public incitement to commit genocide. D. Attempt to commit genocide. E. Complicity in genocide. End of description. Let's circle back to just clarify a few key points of the Convention's definition. One of the criticisms of the idea of a genocide against the trans community is that it doesn't fit within the listed groups that would be included for protection. That is, that the trans community is not a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. This criticism is interesting to me as someone with a minor background in anthropology because what I find is many people don't understand what an ethnicity is. They often confuse it with race or national identity. And while race and national identity can be intertwined with an ethnicity, they are not ethnicity, which is why the convention lists them as three separate things, national, ethnical, racial. Ethnicity just means that people share a common culture, and culture can be shared by a group of people who are racially, nationally, religiously diverse. Additionally, people can share race, nationality, and even religion, and be culturally very unique. Religious wars in history were the result of cultural distinctions between the sects. A Baptist and a Catholic may both consider themselves Christians, but their cultural experience of what that means is vastly different. Clarence Thomas is a black man living in the U.S., but 
culturally, his experience is nothing like a black man who is incarcerated in this same country. Two people who share a race and a nationality can exist in vastly different cultural experiences and circumstances. On the one hand, all these people, the Baptist, the Catholic, Clarence Thomas, and the inmate, are all part of the same U.S. culture. But I think anyone would have to agree that they have another cultural experience often labeled as a subculture, a culture within a culture, that they do not share at all. In the U.S., sometimes called a nation of immigrants, we have too many subcultures to count. As an Italian-American, let me tell you the fun and pushback I had on a post a while ago when I asserted that my American experience was just as valid as anyone else's. And anyone who spends time in trans communities and forums knows that there is absolutely a trans culture. There is specific language and knowledge that is not commonly understood or addressed outside of that community. And there is even a word for trans community members who have come before. They're called transcestors. And that part of me that studied anthropology has been fascinated by it. There is no doubt trans culture is a thing, and ethnicity is a shared culture. The trans community represents an ethnicity. However, since the social media debate about transgenocide, a new discussion has emerged in response to the Israel-Hamas situation, where genocide is now being used to describe what's happening to the residents of Gaza, and to some extent also in the West Bank. Interestingly, the Israeli government response has not been to deny that their actions meet the requirements for genocide. Rather, their argument has focused on refuting the part of the convention that says, with intent to. That is, they aren't denying that the military response to October 7th includes the actions outlined in Article 2. They're rather saying that their intention is not to destroy Palestinians in Gaza, but to pursue and destroy Hamas, and that the substantial violence being perpetrated against civilian populations is, to reach back to an earlier part of the script, just an unfortunate reality of war. The result may be the absolute destruction of the people of Gaza. Israel does not disagree, but that's not their intent, and therefore it isn't technically, legally, a genocide. From a purely human sympathy standpoint, I have to say I'm pretty sure the people being destroyed aren't interested in this technicality. I don't think if someone were blowing up my house and everyone in it, I'd care much if their intent was to kill me or they had some other motive for doing it because the damage I'm experiencing is the same either way. But if you're trying to avoid charges of genocide, you can use an argument around intent to say that it's not genocide based on the way the law is written. This means, if that's not your intent, you're technically not afoul of the law. And this leads to another point that I see levied against Israel that says, if you can create sufficient pretext, then you can create cover for a genocide by causing enough confusion to make people argue about whether or not it's a genocide, while you go out and genocide people. And I've been watching these conversations raging online. That debate consumes a lot of the conversation around this situation. While thousands upon thousands are dying every day, the argument rages on. We are arguing a legal technicality while we're watching a people and a culture be completely destroyed all day and night on our television sets. And this is part of what makes me sad about the Lemkin story, because he worked his whole life to enact this convention, fully believing that he was creating a law that would, into our future, allow the international community to stop this from ever happening again. But it's not impossible, especially in the context of a war, for any country to create a context where it can commit genocide and create sufficient plausible deniability to argue it's not committing a genocide. Intent is difficult to prove. 
If a government wants to, it can create this confusion around intent and potentially get away with genocide. This is in fact a huge part of what bothers me about all laws involving intent over impact. We recently saw a citizen in the U.S. gun down three Palestinian students. Of course, that person will be charged. But there's a question of whether, in the context of huge spikes in anti-Jewish and anti-Arab hate crimes in the U.S., this was a hate crime. And the only way to prosecute it is to show intent. Every official who has stood up to discuss this appeared visibly frustrated by the fact that they were not able to say the students were shot because of bigotry, even though anyone looking at it, a man shoots three strangers who just happen to be wearing Middle Eastern garb speaking partially in Arabic during a social context of violent anti-Arab bigotry, understands it's more likely they were targeted by race and nationality and potentially also assumed religion, than that this was a random shooting. I'm not saying we should assume intent. I'm saying we should maybe look at this in a way that targets actual impact over intent. We have some laws that are violations due to impact, regardless of intent. A wrongful killing without intent is still prosecuted as negligent homicide. With intent, we generally consider it some form of murder, the penalties with intent are often harsher, but both are punished because there is an assumption that we need to be conscious of situations where our actions could cause damage, even if we didn't mean to. And someone who is not responsible or reasonable or informed enough to avoid a situation like that is considered dangerous, although not as dangerous as a person who does intentional harm. And yes, this guy is going to be charged for what he did, and it's highly likely it will be charged as intentional because he shot these young men outright. I think he even addressed them before doing so, but a hate crime is generally about protecting people who are from communities targeted for increased social hostility and institutional disadvantage. That is, they face greater persecution and violence on the daily, and as a result, we're trying to provide greater protections to them since they're very often more vulnerable than people who don't share their community identities. So I don't just mean impact on these three young men who were hospitalized, one who will probably be paralyzed the rest of his life. I'm talking about impact to the Muslim Arab community. With regard to his crime against his direct targets, he will be charged and likely convicted. But he'll be off on the hate crime if they can't prove intent, even though the impact and damage to the Arab community will be the same. Because we focus a hate crime on intent rather than impact, there is no way to prosecute for negligence because it's only about intention, not harm. It would be like someone running a red light, causing an accident, and killing a family of four, but saying that we can't prosecute that because he was just daydreaming and didn't mean to kill anyone. Of course we don't expect the driver to face the same consequences as someone who intends to cause a fatal crash, but should the damage be completely ignored because the intent to cause it wasn't there? This is the part of hate crime laws I don't understand. You can inflict as much damage as you like on a marginalized community as long as you don't speak your motive out loud. Again, it's like how a genocide you didn't mean to commit isn't a crime. It's just an unfortunate result of war. Maybe we can prosecute it under proportionality of response, but without that intent, the culture you erased and the way you erased it broke none of our laws against genocide because it was an accidental genocide. The problem with hate crimes isn't that the perpetrator hates people. It's that they have engaged in some sort of aggressive or violent act that further intimidates communities that are already at risk and experiencing deprivation, intimidation, violence, and fear due to real and substantial institutional and social biases. When crimes against these groups happen, we often see more that follow, and we're aware of this. Right now, in the news, the rise in instances of reports from Jews and Arabs are all over the place. 
These acts appear to encourage people who already felt hostile toward these groups to then also act on their hostile feelings, compounding the problems that these communities face. If I'm already suffering from anxiety because of the regular levels of marginalization I experience, what happens when I see on the news that someone has modeled this behavior of gunning us down in the street? And this is any person in the Arab community in the U.S. What must it be like for other Arab students at their college in their city? I remember Andrew Yang denouncing identity politics. But after rhetoric around COVID started to escalate crimes against Asian Americans, suddenly he was all about his Asian identity and the need for the politicians to start passing laws to protect Asian communities. Because of course, when you're attacked based on your association with a community, it's impossible to ignore. And it's fair to ask for special protections for your community. It's fair to insert your identity into politics when you need elected officials to help protect you and your community. Is it so unreasonable for a society to expect people to have a basic level of cultural literacy and to take cultural context into account? Anyone with a basic level of media literacy knows there is a rise in aggression and violence against Arabs and Jews right now in the United States. That shooting was not just against one person or three people in this case. When your victim is a marginalized person, you're aiming that gun at an entire community because of the way society perceives marginalized people as a community. A crime against a person who can be easily identified as part of a group at whom social hostility and dehumanization is already directed has a ripple effect throughout the community. That is, the problem with a hate crime is not whether or not the person who perpetrated it intended those effects. This shooter saw what the students were wearing. He heard them speaking a mix of Arabic and English. If he didn't realize he was about to shoot three young Arab men, I'm willing to say he should have. He should have known he was shooting Arab men. He should have known they were in a group that is currently facing a rise in violence. He should have known what he was about to do would cause further damage to a community. And even if he didn't intend it, it was negligent harm to an entire group. And for that, this man may get off scot-free just by saying, that wasn't his intent. And that is a grave injustice and another example of how marginalized communities are marginalized. Our laws let them know that targeting them for violence is okay. Violence against them is still illegal, but targeting them specifically for violence is easy to get away with because it's not about whether they're harmed, it's about whether the person who harmed them meant to. So it's a source of frustration that we have a UN law written in such a way that it's illegal to wipe out an entire culture or people off the face of the earth unless you didn't mean to. Then it's fine. It's a rather convenient loophole for a perpetrator, whether it's a UN convention or a US law, to ignore damages entirely instead of focus entirely on intention. And I think Lemkin, if he were alive today, would be disappointed that as far as I'm aware, the convention he worked so hard to make real has not prevented a single genocide since it was ratified, at least not that I was able to find. There's a lot written about the importance of preventing it, just not a lot of actual preventing it, even at the UN's own website. But they seem to equate prevention with things like preventing wars, not actually intervening in an ongoing genocide in someone else's country to stop it. And I'll get back to Lemkin's story, but I do want to get to the examples of the online conversations I've observed and why I see them differently after reading A Problem from Hell. In one conversation about what's taking place in Gaza, someone said that 6 million Jews is a genocide, 11,000, which was the estimated casualty rate in Gaza at the time the comment was made, was not a genocide. 
Now, when I read that comment, instead of asking myself how many people need to die for a genocide to have happened, I think this is a person who doesn't know what the word genocide means because there is no quantity of death associated with it. In fact, under the law, you don't have to kill a single person and you can still be charged under the Genocide Convention with various charges tied to genocide. The word and the subsequent law were created to help to ensure that zero people should die by genocide any longer by allowing the UN to intervene in genocide before it reaches the point of deaths. The next comment that was posted under someone else's post about the Gaza situation, calling it a genocide in their OP, the first comment was from someone named Dean. He just said, war is terrible. Someone replied, This isn't war. This is an extermination of an occupied people. Dean responded, that's basically what war is. Both sides try to kill each other. Another person replied, it's genocide, not war. Before the genocide convention, Dean would have been correct in that genocide would have been seen as just one of those awful realities that can sometimes happen during wartime. But after the convention, Dean is wrong that genocide and war are indistinguishable. And this was Lemkin's entire point. There was something he witnessed against the Armenians and later against Jews in Europe that could be independently defined. He created that label, genocide. He crafted the criteria that separated it from the category of casualties of war. He pushed his entire life to get the globe, or at least empower the UN members at that time, to agree that this was not just standard collateral damage during time of war. Again, I now look at Dean's comment and I think, this is someone who doesn't know what genocide is or why it was created and codified. And since I learned just a little more about genocide and what it means and how it became a thing, separate and apart from war crimes or crimes against humanity, I can't read threads about genocide and see them the same way. I keep comparing the comments to the UN convention and judging whether the person speaking actually has any understanding of what they're talking about. Or do they, like I did until recently, believe that because someone has a unit on World War II in school, they're sufficiently educated to have opinions about this word and this crime. When I realized how much interference in these conversations is created by that single point of ignorance, the history of genocide, I decided that learning more about it and sharing that learning was worth an episode. I think about all the years I spent with this proprietary personal idea of what a genocide was, often intertwined with my understanding of the Holocaust, as if that were the metric for genocide, like the Holocaust is what defined genocide rather than the UN Convention and Raphael Lemkin, which all kicked off because of something that happened decades before the Holocaust in the Ottoman Empire. But the Holocaust was a genocide. It was influential in getting Lemkin's convention passed. If he had been working with only the Armenian history and the Holocaust would not have happened when it did, who is to say if or when any law regarding this concept would ever have materialized? He might have died with his dream unrealized and we'd live in a world where that label means much less than it does today. Power's book was published more than 20 years ago now, and even in that time, the world has changed a lot. It's changed even more since the UN Convention was adopted at the end of the 1940s. In reading about Lemkin, I saw a person who was committed to a goal, and I understood his inspiration. I also saw the distinction he was trying to draw. He was a lawyer, and he came at the problem as a legal problem. He believed it could be remedied with the right law and the right support. And as I've mentioned already, his entire life was devoted to achieving this one thing, making sure that genocide was a codified international crime, separate and apart from war crimes and crimes against humanity. I don't think anyone would have a hard time understanding his motivation or why that would be considered a worthwhile goal. The problem, though, was that Lemkin operated under the assumption that laws actually work to protect people rather than enforce a status quo based on structural power and authority. Going back to the Gaza example and all of the opinions swirling around it, 
Those who are suggesting we're looking at genocide in Gaza would argue Israel intends to empty out Gaza in order to annex the land for exploitation, to expand settlements and national territory, and appropriate offshore oil reserves. The counter to that has been that Israel is retaliating on an attack by Hamas on October 7th, and that there is no amount of damage that would be too much in pursuit of that end. The Hamas attack, however filled with atrocities, has resulted in both a cause for retaliation to some, but also provided a pretext to pursue a further goal of taking the territory through genocide to others. And behind this debate, tens of thousands are being slaughtered, including thousands of children. And in the meantime, on social media and in the UN, as the civil conversations and public dialogue continue, across our laptops and cell phones and in expensive meeting rooms over dinners and brunches full of delegates and generals, the deaths are compounding as the remaining hospitals lose their ability to treat the wounded and dying, as refugees are starving and unable to access clean water, and as disease and dysentery ravage survivors gathered by the thousands in the only remaining spaces hoping for safety. No matter who is correct, whether Israel as a nation, having endured a horrifying attack causing a thousand citizen deaths, is asserting a right to respond, or whether we're looking at a pretext to gain this land and destroy a people who stand in the way of a territorial expansion, the result is the same, the annihilation of a population made up of a good number of children being driven out of their homes, off their land, and into their graves. But let's keep arguing about intent instead of talking about how to stop this from going any further. I get there are other crimes to consider as well, as I understand it, rules about proportionality of response, ensuring the safety of civilians as much as possible, collective punishment, and so on. I get that there are more rules that can be used beyond genocide. War crimes and crimes against humanity encompass a whole other realm of prohibited or required actions about which I am completely inexpert. But if we were witnessing this anywhere in the world and the UN saw the problem and decided this is genocide in addition to these other crimes, there's a whole maze of procedures in place to make it as difficult as possible to enforce. In the UN, there are five nations, China, France, Russia, the UK, and the United States, who have something called veto power within a body called the UN Security Council. Again, I am not an authority on the UN or international law or any law, and I'm sure this is probably a lot more complicated than what I have found so far. Anyone who wants to do a deeper dive and see what else you can find out about it, feel free. If you find anything interesting or in conflict with what I've found, as always, drop a comment and let me know. But if you Google this, these five nations appear to have the ability to block any, quote, substantive, unquote, convention, even if all of the other members vote in favor. And in fact, that's exactly what we witnessed recently when the UN Secretary General used a rare power called Article 99. I looked it up to see what kind of power it gave him, and apparently it means he can suggest something to the Security Council. So he did. He suggested they impose a ceasefire. All of the members who voted voted in favor, except the U.S., who voted against it. The U.K. abstained. But because the U.S. is one of the five members with veto power, the vote failed. 13 nations to one. That's a lot of power for one nation. When I first scripted this, I assumed there would be a way to escalate the process. Then I thought maybe there isn't, but apparently there is. And after the U.S. veto within the U.N. Security Council, the Secretary General rushed to the U.N. General Assembly to put the proposal before the larger body for a vote. And here again, the ceasefire had overwhelming support with 153 voting in favor and 10 voting against 23 abstentions. 
So in effect, the UN General Assembly can, it seems, override a UN Security Council veto. So the veto only created a delay in passing the ceasefire. And how many more innocent people died in that space so that the U.S. could flex its powerful international muscle? Keep in mind, this is just about a ceasefire. This is not a motion by the UN to address genocide or any other crimes. My point is not to conflate, but to show the kind of bureaucracy that Lemkin was entrusting his hopes and dreams with when he decided that this body would be our best hope of ending genocide around the world. That's the part I don't think Lemkin envisioned, which was weird because it took him his entire adult lifetime just to get this one convention passed for something as seemingly unifying as, let's make genocide a crime. He was twice nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, but never won. He died in poverty and almost no one attended his funeral. He had no family or friends at that point, many dying in Europe during World War II, and his connections in his work feeling annoyed by his all-consuming drive to end genocide. Nobody wanted to be in favor of genocide, but a lot of UN members realized these sorts of new international laws that were rising to the top would mean letting go of the idea of national sovereignty in favor of global cooperation. Seeing how much effort and labor and time and resource Lemkin had to dump into his goal, you think he'd realize bureaucracies move far too slowly to work in the way they would need to for his vision of how that law would impact the world to ever become a reality. Does that mean I don't think he should have pushed to make genocide illegal? No, I can't really say that I'd prefer there be no law against it. But from a procedural standpoint, I'm not sure his law has done much good. It may have resulted in a handful of people being charged and convicted of genocide or incitement to genocide after the fact. But considering Wikipedia lists 18 genocides, more than one of which is still listed as ongoing, since the time the convention passed, resulting in the deaths of millions of human beings on the conservative estimate side, it's fair to ask how effective this law has been in practice. Lemkin actually raised the point that a law against genocide as a legal tool or a definition of genocide that did not include the procedural steps to get to the mass killing would be a useless definition. That is, his goal was not to prosecute people who successfully committed a genocide. His vision of his law was that it would be used to prevent genocide. He wanted the UN to use the law in the cause of creating a world that would be genocide-free. But laws are only as effective as they are enforced. They are only as effective as the institutions responsible for that enforcement. I'm not sure how a man like Lemkin, so driven and so correct about the need to end genocide and so familiar with the law and how slowly the UN wheels turn, could have overlooked the problem of structural power imbalance and ineffectiveness of that body in his bid to create his genocide-free world, but he did. If his goal was genocide prevention, which he said it was, was he just so caught up in making this law a reality that he lost sight of the actual logistics of how it would be implemented? Or maybe the UN was just so new that he didn't realize how ineffective that body would be in matters that require swift and decisive international action and intervention. Or how things like this veto power would allow one nation to render the entire UN powerless while delaying solutions. I guess it's fair to give him that he hadn't really seen this body operate for as many years as we have today. Maybe he thought that as they grew, they would operate more effectively. In fact, the book, A Problem from Hell, is actually a chronicle of genocides that have happened since Lemkin and since the convention was ratified, and a description of how the U.S., and the international community has repeatedly looked the other way, denied what was going on, shied away from intervention, and ignored voices from the field who raised the alarm loud and clear. 
In one section of A Problem from Hell, Power talks about the ways in which bystander nations and global citizens reframe genocide in order to justify inaction. I'd like to read a passage from the book because it was chilling in how little global attitudes about intervention have changed, even after codifying international options for when intervention is warranted. Power states early in the book, in the actual preface in fact, that, quote, contrary to any assumption I may have harbored while I traveled around the former Yugoslavia, the Bush and Clinton administration's responses to atrocities in Bosnia were consistent with prior American responses to genocide. Early warnings of massive bloodshed proliferated. The spewing of inflammatory propaganda escalated. The massacres and deportations started. U.S. policymakers struggled to wrap their minds around the horrors. Refugee stories and press reports of atrocities became too numerous to deny. Few Americans at home pressed for intervention. A hopeful but passive and ultimately deadly American waiting game commenced. And genocide proceeded unimpeded by U.S. action and often emboldened by U.S. inaction. The book's major findings can be summarized as follows. Despite graphic media coverage, American policymakers, journalists, and citizens are extremely slow to muster the imagination needed to reckon with evil. Ahead of the killings, they assume rational actors will not inflict seemingly gratuitous violence. They trust in good-faith negotiations and traditional diplomacy. Once the killings start, they assume that civilians who keep their heads down will be left alone. They urge ceasefires and donate humanitarian aid. It is in the realm of domestic politics that the battle to stop genocide is lost. American political leaders interpret society-wide silence as an indicator of public indifference. They reason that they will incur no costs if the United States remains uninvolved, but will face steep risks if they engage. Potential sources of influence, lawmakers on Capitol Hill, editorial boards, non-governmental groups, and ordinary constituents do not generate political pressure sufficient to change the calculus of America's leaders. The U.S. government not only abstains from sending its troops, but it takes very few steps along a continuum of intervention to deter genocide. U.S. officials spin themselves, as well as the American public, about the nature of the violence in question and the likely impact of an American intervention. They render the bloodshed two-sided and inevitable, not genocidal. They insist that any proposed U.S. response will be futile. Indeed, it may even do more harm than good, bringing perverse consequences to the victims and jeopardizing other precious American moral or strategic interests. They brand as emotional those U.S. officials who urge intervention and who make moral arguments in a system that speaks principally in the cold language of interests. They avoid the use of the word genocide. Thus, they can, in good conscience, favor stopping genocide in the abstract while simultaneously opposing American involvement in the moment. The sharpest challenge to the world of bystanders is posed by those who have refused to remain silent in the age of genocide. In each case, a few Americans stood out by standing up. They did not lose sight of right and wrong, even as they were repeatedly steered to a context that others said precluded action. They refused to accept either that they could not influence U.S. policy or that the United States could not influence the killers. These individuals were not alone in their struggles, but they were not in crowded company either. By seeing what they tried to get done, we see what America could have done. We also see what we might ourselves have attempted. By seeing how and why we failed, we see what we as a nation let happen. Unquote. I wanted to get into some of the ratification history because that's even more of our shameful U.S. past. But based on the word count of the script right now, I'm about at an hour. So just to say, the U.S. had a real problem with ratifying this convention against genocide. We were so hesitant, in fact, that we were the very last nation to ratify it in 1988. The convention was created in 1948, 40 years before. And currently, 
only the Dominican Republic remains the only nation to have not ratified the convention, although they have signed it. Still, it took the land of the free 40 years to decide whether we wanted to commit to the idea that genocide should be considered an international crime. And that's, well, that's just so very USA. One of our main fears was that we'd be charged with this new law ourselves for our own oppression of marginalized communities, which is kind of a giveaway that the United States knows it's guilty of things it fears might be seen as genocide. Our official objection was that we feared the infringement of national sovereignty, which is also a bit hypocritical for a nation that's interfered around the globe with the sovereignty of so many other nations. But that's for another day. As always, this is my takeaway from the early pages of A Problem from Hell, from some further Google searches on some of the information it piqued my interest about, some observations on some social media conversations I came across while looking into this, and some personal thoughts that are inexpert and probably worth what you've paid for them. I've left you breadcrumbs in the description if you'd like to start your own journey on this topic. I hope you've learned some things because I absolutely did. And please take care of yourselves and each other as best you can out there. Talk to you next time. That's it for this episode of At Home In My Head, exploring experience and meaning in individuals and the broader society. Like and subscribe if you enjoy these talks. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.